Okay, we're underway. Uh, this is the Glenn Show. I'm Glenn Lowry. Find the Glenn Show at glennlowry.substack.com and also find it at YouTube. My channel is Glenn Lowry Show at YouTube. And on the Blogging Heads platform, Robert Wright's Enterprise, bloggingheads.tv, I'm with Rav Aurora, uh, who is uh, a precocious writer, a budding journalist, um, a critic, a social critic, um, uh, a young fellow sitting in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, who can be found in the pages of the New York Post, uh, Quillette.com, uh, most recently the City Journal, uh, that's the organ of the Manhattan Institute, uh, writing about social issues, inequality, race, identity, uh, political correctness. I, I don't know, Rob, you can fill in the blanks here. But uh, tell people who you, who you are and what, what you're about and how it is that we come to be talking to each other here at the Glenn Show. Yeah, so I'm a journalist based in Vancouver, BC, and I'm an undergraduate student studying, uh, for a while I was studying mostly criminology, but over the last six months I've taken a bit of a detour and now I'm studying esoteric Eastern philosophy and Buddhism, uh, neuroscience stuff, meditation. So that's kind of a separate interest, which I'm also exploring in my uh, Substack publication that I just started on meditation and psychedelics and spirituality and that kind of thing. That's the ravarora.substack.com if anybody's interested. But my, my primary focus in my writing and my commentary is on crime, murders, homicides, uh, stories that I think that are not being portrayed enough in the mainstream media. And so I've, I've, I've noticed this massive, massive deficiency, if you will, in the media of actually yeah, putting the spotlight on these stories of, of, of uh, crime, societal neglect, uh, communities that are caught up in this vicious cycle of crime, poverty, lawlessness, lack of police. Um, these issues were just always on my mind in high school for whatever reason. I was always interested in crime in general, always, you know, watching the crime shows and reading detective uh, novels and that kind of thing. And then once, um, once, I, once I graduated high school, I just uh, started researching and reading about this more, uh, watching The Glenn Show pretty often and reading Thomas Sowell, following Coleman Hughes. And then when the George Floyd, uh, uh, incident happened, which is very tragic. Then at that time, I started writing, and then a couple, I wrote a couple of articles on identity politics and white privilege and defunding the police. And those articles did really, really well. And so from there, what was supposed to be just a, a one-off article turned into more of a regular contribution scheme where every month I was writing a couple of pieces and, and writing on these stories that I think are, are very important. So, so here we are. It's been, um, I guess, a year and a half, and I've just been consistently writing about uh, issues pertaining to to crime, policing, criminal justice, and also identity politics and uh, uh, racial justice issues. How old are you, Rob? 20. Well, that's pretty young by my experience of uh, people in the world of uh, op-eds and essays and magazines and stuff like that. What accounts for your pro, uh, how do we say this, your precocious precocity? 
I don't even know how to say the word for being so precocious. How, how do you find, how do you end up uh, with such an active pen and, and such a lively mind? It would appear. Um, well, I don't have the answer to that question directly, but <laughs> I mean, I've just been, how'd you get started? Um, who encouraged you? Uh, you know, right. when, when, what was your first piece about, uh, you know, who reads your stuff before you yeah. send it into the editor? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I already briefly explained that with uh, when the Black Lives Matter protests were happening last year. That, that That's what initially inspired me to start writing about these issues. I felt like we were going in a, a totally misguided direction with respect to uh, with respect to racial dynamics and also the dynamics of the criminal justice system. And so at that point, I, I thought now would be a good time to write about this. And my first piece was on white privilege and the fallacies of white privilege, uh, breaking down group disparities, uh, why, why certain groups outperform others, and what, are, what could be some of those uh, explanations in terms of behavior and culture and history and economics. And that, that, again, was largely influenced by Thomas Sowell and yourself, John McWhorter, Coleman Hughes, um, especially. I think, I think Coleman was actually a pretty big influence early on when I was in high school. Um, you know, when I was 16, 17 years old, you know, looking at Coleman as, a, as another young thinker who's also brought up, you know, on the Glenn show, obviously, early on with his uh, essays in Colette. But I think looking at him and how much success he had gotten was very inspiring. Like, oh, you don't have to have a college degree. You don't have to have years of journalistic experience to actually uh, articulate these uh, opinions in, a, in an interesting way. And so just going off of Coleman and reading his work a lot, I, I sort of shaped my own perspective and you know he coleman is less of a journalist now and he's more he's writing his book right now obviously um and so i've kind of you know carved out this improvised role where uh stories about defunding the police or about crime being shot through the roof and the police being nowhere to be found homicide victimization societal neglect i've kind of carved out this area where i'm writing about these issues that Unfortunately, not a lot of people are, are writing about, which is very, very strange. Like people at the New York Times and the Atlantic and the Washington Post, you know, people who are supposed to be writing about crime issues who are being paid six figures, for whatever reason, these stories are not on their radar as much. I mean, you'll see a piece in the New York Times maybe once every few months or once every six months, same in the Washington Post about how crime is rising and the, the changing dynamics in law enforcement, but by no means you're seeing any amount of adequate coverage of these issues in Minneapolis, Seattle, Philadelphia, all around the country where you're seeing so much chaos with respect to law enforcement and with respect to crime. But because of political correctness in the wake of uh, the, the George Floyd kind of racial reawakening, um, any kind of narrative any kind of story that would indicate, strongly indicate that you, you need more law enforcement, not less, that the police are, are needed, would be ignored. Those stories uh, are, are totally ignored. Obviously, if the story is about how we need less police or how the police are brutal or excessive in their use of force, which obviously exists, those stories are obviously going to be you know, quickly done by every outlet whenever there's a police shooting or another incident with a cop misbehaving, which is totally real and, and happens, but stories where it's the opposite, where it's residents begging for more police, 
where uh, there's clearly a crime problem where you're reaching historical records. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about all of that. You're seeing the, the media just turning a blind eye and just no one really knowing what's going on. And so that's kind of where I've come in to fill in that hole um, and then write about these very uh, important and pressing issues of people who really don't have a voice. You were radicalized by Black Lives Matter. Do I get that right? Uh, early on in high school, when I first started reading about racial justice issues, I, I definitely was sort of pro-BLM, sort of following the conventional narrative about policing, about racial issues. And, and then I started to just kind of fact check a lot of these claims and kind of dig up the data because I'm a very uh, statistics oriented person as well. Um, and, I, and I realized a lot of the claims that were being made were not empirically supported. And that's when I started reading Thomas Sowell and Coleman Hughes and, again, listening to you. And it, it dawned on me that a lot of these, these uh, popularized uh, narratives surrounding race were, were largely fallacious. There might be a kernel of truth, like, yes, there is police brutality, there is racism, there is excessive use of force, there is racial profiling. But is it on the scale where LeBron James is saying, you know, as a black person, every time uh, you go outside, you know, you should fear being killed by the police. Like that's obviously preposterous, right? Are there issues with policing? Yes, of course. And we can talk about that. But does that mean we should abolish the police? No. But that's what people like Colin Kaepernick, who just released this uh, essay um, compilation that I was reading that was uh, in a lot of traction. And, and it's a whole book filled with essays by him and Angela Davis and Kimberly Crenshaw about abolishing the police and it's at the front of the bookstore that people are buying because they think that's the way that we solve our problems is by abolishing the police which is absolutely insane you're ahead of me i didn't know that uh kaepernick had a book out uh with uh crenshaw and angela davis uh advocating abolishing the police that's that's rich I, I, i'm interviewing you i'm not doing the a monologue here, so I will I will restrain myself from further comment until I can get my hands on the volume and take a look at what they're up to. But it doesn't sound quite right. But you're sitting in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. That's not exactly the United States of America. Yet the everything you're talking about is happening below the, mm-hmm. yeah. the parallel there. So what's up with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I I should address that actually because that is a critique I've gotten by certain blue check marks on Twitter. Like, why is this kid? <laughs> Why is this random kid living in Vancouver, Canada, right. who has no experience, has no experience with crime and homicides and any of these things? Why is this person suddenly like the person to trust on these issues? Right. That, that's actually a real argument that I've gotten. And and I, I would say I would say two things uh, in response to that. The first thing I would say is uh, the, the the difference between me and and somebody, an Ivy League educated reporter for the New York Times is uh, negligible in terms of their experience with homicide victimization, right? Like if we're talking about, like, I have no experience with this, why should I be writing about this? You know, many journalists in the elite class are, aren't really in touch with these communities. We know that. With, you, can, you read the New York Times and it's like, what? What are you talking about? This is racist? You, you know, your, your bookshelf is now... A, a, an example of your racism like is this really the problem that we should be like spending you know 800 words on about why you know your 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 reading shelf is not diverse enough or 
why your music playlists are not different. Like all these like, like stupid things, trivial uh, things that they write about, obviously. Um, so, so somebody, you know, somebody who writes for the, for the New York Times, who's an American, um, who has been assigned to write about something like this, they're no better, they're, they're no more qualified than I am on writing about these things just because they're American, just because they live, you know, 45 minutes away across the border. That, that, that seems to be an artificial uh, barrier. Um, and obviously, somebody who has had these experiences should be preferred in, in writing and publishing about these things. I mean, we're not seeing too much of that, uh, frankly speaking. I mean, maybe if you look at local outlets like the Minneapolis, the Star Tribune, you know, you'll have people within the community writing about it, which is very important. And I frequently read their coverage and, and base my own writing on that. Um, but I mean, there's just a, a lack of uh, uh, coverage on these stories. So, so when people say that to me, like, why are you covering this? Well, like, who, what, what makes you qualified? It's like, okay, it, I'll stop doing it. Then who else is going to do this stuff, right? It's, it's either I do it, and I'm, I'm by no means saying I'm some brave soldier on the ground putting my life at risk. That's not the case at all. I, I'm interviewing people virtually, by the way. And I, I think that's also very important that I'm doing that, not just speaking not just writing in my own insulated environment in Canada, but I'm actually interviewing people in uh, Philadelphia, uh, Minneapolis, uh, and other places, and actually asking them, like, well, like, what are the problems you are facing? And, and they're sharing these stories with me, and I'm directly quoting them. And you know, you, you've read these pieces, and many other people have. What's, what's happening in Minneapolis? But it's it's frankly a matter of you know I spotlight these stories and give them the attention they deserve, or if I'm not qualified, then basically nobody else is going to, you know, unless you want to rely on a, a once in every four months, once in every five months article in the New York Times, which is not adequate by any means. Today's show sponsor is The Spectator magazine. Having been founded in 1828, it's the longest running magazine in the world. The mission statement they sent me says they believe that journalism must be witty and insightful and that ideas should be discussed without the constant threat of cancellation. They're neither right or left wing and consider their mission to convey intelligence, not ideology. They believe that life is bigger than politics, which is why the magazine covers arts, culture, food, wine, travel, and life all around. The slogan they use to convey this is the Spectator is more cocktail party, less political party. So sign up today and you'll receive three free months of both the print and digital magazine, plus a free Spectator hat. Just use offer code GLENN, G-L-E-N-N, at checkout to redeem the special offer just for listeners of this podcast. Go to spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and use offer code Glenn. I've been aware of The Spectator for many years and feel comfortable saying that even if you disagree with its politics, you are guaranteed to be entertained. Their contributors include many prominent and sometimes controversial authors, from Christopher Buckley, to PJ O'Rourke, to Douglas Murray, to Slavoj Žižek, from the Biden administration to book reviews, from cancel culture, to cultural cuisine. The Spectator will entertain you from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three months of The Spectator for free, plus a free Spectator hat when you subscribe at spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer. 
Use offer code Glenn at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and offer code Glenn. Uh, let me ask you, if I may, a, a personal question. Um, you you appear to be a person, quote, of color, close quote. Do you accept that as a, a characterization? That's a preliminary to what I really want to ask you. Do I do I accept? The, do you think of yourself the, as a person uh, of color? Um, I don't like to look at it that way. Uh, I, I find the the whole categorization of people of color to be way too broad to provide any sort of meaningful insight. I mean, you're you're talking like if you look at estimates globally, you know, some um, uh, experts like uh, anthropologists or people who look at yeah. racial differences they say people of color like 60 80 90 percent of the planet even like people of color is just, just too broad of a category like the difference i mean the similarity between me and an immigrant from china and somebody from peru and somebody from nigeria uh yeah. is not real that that similarity is, is not is not anything significant that would make somebody from nigeria and somebody of uh of uh, French or Italian background to be any significantly different. So, so no, I, I don't find that to be a uh, useful uh, distinction to make because again, it's just too uh, it's just too broad of a, a categorization in my view. Okay. But what I wanted to ask was whether you worry that uh, the responses that you're getting from some of the places that have uh, wanted to receive your writing, uh, whether or not you identify in a certain way as non-white. Are the responses are to some degree motivated by uh, wanting to exploit your uh, apparent identity on behalf of their political program? So the New York Post is right of center within the constellation of journalism. I think we'd have to say Quillette is intellectual dark web territory, according to some, as I'm sure you've heard. The Manhattan Institute, where I am a, a visiting fellow. I'm a distinguished fellow at the Manhattan Institute. I like the Manhattan Institute. I, I give talks and write my own essays in city journals. So there's nothing wrong with the Manhattan Institute. Which are excellent, by the way, your, your essays. And Thank you. Certain talks you Thank you. At, at MI, which but the question followed. is, do you think that to some degree they want to put the face of a non-white person next to an argument against Black Lives Matter or in favor of um, more heavy-handed policing? Uh, as a way of giving credibility to something which is exploiting your identity or apparent identity. Yeah. Uh, right. I. Um, well, what I will say on that question is um, definitely wouldn't use the word exploit, but, but I, I will say, honestly speaking, the first essay that I wrote um, in the wake of George Floyd was the fallacies of white privilege in the New York Post. And that, that was that was probably, I don't want to say my biggest piece, but at the time it was, it was, it was viral. Everybody was reading it across the internet, um, or at least in the intellectual dark web, in conservative circles, everybody was, was reading it. Um, and, and it is almost no doubt in my mind that writing about the fallacies of white privilege um, was way easier. It was way easier to get that published as a non-white person because you can't you can't attack me as the author as 
harboring implicit or explicit racism. You just can't do that. So, so that that kind of provides an a uh, an immunization from that critique. And uh, because in the article too that I wrote uh, that one, I explicitly mentioned my experiences with racism as a way to bring readers on the journey of like, no, I'm not some like sellout non-white person. I'm not a racist person. I've experienced racism as a young person growing up in elementary school, especially. And, and, and then here's why I think the progressive discourse is mirroring those same kind of uh, explicitly racist ideas, but kind of uh, um, encasing it in this uh, virtuous utopian compassion-driven rhetoric, right? And so getting stuff like that published, talking about why I think white privilege is on the decline. And I have an essay coming out probably later this month, which uh, is a progression from my viral essay on the fallacies of white privilege. But, but this time, this is going to be the, the death of white privilege in elite circles in corporate America. Like, like this is a whole other topic, but, but it's, it is without a doubt, and I'm sure you can you would agree with this, that being a, a qualified person of color, even though I don't like that category, but being a qualified ethnic person, especially a qualified, highly educated black individual, stepping into the, the labor market, going into a law firm, even like police departments and or dentistry, surgeons, whatever it is, you have an enormous amount of privilege because they want diversity. And where somebody who's white, you know, they might be, um, uh, they, they might be uh, facing a certain kind of discrimination by somebody who is maybe equally qualified, who's black or less qualified, but let's say the law firm, they're like, we need diversity. This white person, you know, they look good, but screw them. We want the black person in because, because then we'll look more diverse and more woke and, and whatever it is. So, so the, 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 the dynamics of, of, uh, of race relations are, are rapidly cascading and shifting and I, I've written about this at length but, but yeah I, I think I've, I've, I've answered your question about how it is easier writing certain pieces about racial inequality as a non-white person and I don't think that's actually just like I, I have friends who have very similar views on the fallacies of, of white privilege for example or on defunding the police on BLM on police shootings but they feel far more fearful and apprehensive of voicing their opinions because they're white and so they'll be attacked as as racist and so I, I sort of have a bit of a protective shield not a complete protective shield I've still been attacked as you know being a sellout non-white person and you, you know how it is you, you know that more than I do certainly about being the Uncle Tom character whatever it is especially as a black person where you're supposed to follow these certain set of uh, religious values and beliefs with regards to race relations and, and politics and if you don't then you're a sellout then you're a then you're the black face of white supremacy as uh the the la times said about larry elder which i'm sure you heard about um so yeah i, I think i've uh, hopefully answered your question there yeah i stopped worrying about that a long long time ago um if i let it bother me Good. i wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning uh <laughs> <laughs> but uh okay uh so i got to play devil's advocate and i have to push back here uh, it's uh, anti-black racism that we're talking about here. There's a um, history of it in the United States of America, and it's connected up with policing. Uh, 
it's not just the uh, viral incidents like a Michael Brown or uh, uh, Tamir Rice or uh, Freddie Gray or whatever. It's day in and day out. And your statistics don't really capture the reality of it, of being in a community that's over-policed, of being under the constant suspicious gaze, of being suspected of. Uh, and it's a deep part of American history. I mean, it goes all the way back uh, to 1619. Uh, and it hasn't really been overcome the racism that people want to call to your attention with a movement for Black lives? Why would people come out of their homes in cities all across this country, all across the world, and not only people of color, but our allies uh, protesting? Are they all crazy? Are they all hallucinating? You say you have a, a better grip on reality than they do, even though they are living day to day with uh, the uh, reality of being Black in America? Uh, this is progress. This is the way political progress happens. If we were to turn the clock back 50 years, and I'll stop, we would have found the same kind of objections to the agitation uh, that we associate now with the heroic uh, civil rights movement, the same kind of uh, refusal, civil disobedience, refusal to accept authority, challenging of convention, uh, demonstration and protest. It, it pains me. It really hurts me to see a young person. I'm not young anymore. You have your future ahead of you. The, world, the world is in your hands. Uh, and you, you lack the sense of outrage at injustice and a sense of determination to oppose it. Instead, you allow yourself to be a mouthpiece of reaction. We're really very disappointed, Ruff. Oh, man, what am I going to do with that critique? I should, I should leave this podcast now. I'm demoralized here. <laughs> No, 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 that's good. That, that's a, uh, a pretty uh, thorough uh, response, which uh, is, is actually more uh, sophisticated than the people who actually should be voicing that response, but, but they just refer to more ad hominem or superficial attacks on me. Um, uh, with, with respect to broader problems in policing, there's no doubt in my mind that there needs to be police reform, and that should be emphasized. Um, that that there should be more measures for accountability for policing so that there is less misbehavior less excessive force and and a lot of that comes from increasing policing funding like we, we've seen studies where when you have less police officers they're there and they're you know they're spread thin they, they are more likely to make um mistakes lethal mistakes in, in some cases and so we need more officers and we need to train them better, offer them, offer them uh, psychotherapy, mental health help. We know traumas exist and, and, and all these things. Uh, and, and so a lot of the cases that we see with uh, police misbehavior are morally repugnant. And we should be figuring out ways to uh, rectify that. So, so I fully concede when, when, people, when many common sense liberals say these are the ways we need to reform the police. I'm fully on board with that. Um, but what, what we've seen over the past year is a decline in policing and a skyrocketing of homicide. So naturally the emphasis, not, not my emphasis, but the emphasis of actually these communities that are ridden with, with crime and violence 
is of, of, of more policing because hundreds of officers have left the Minneapolis PD, Seattle PD, Philadelphia, et cetera. And so, you know, you know, if, if that weren't the case and George Floyd didn't have it, you know, maybe I might be writing more about these are the ways to reform the police. This is how we should be better funding the police and, and all these things. But right now the emphasis is people are calling the police. They're nowhere to be found. You know, in the case of Minneapolis, which we can talk more about, they're, they're saying, you know, people are calling the police because of a carjacking. You know, this one woman that I, I heard about through a secondhand account, she's saying, you know, somebody's breaking into my car um, and she's calling the police and they're saying, is it a, you know, is this person a direct threat to you right now? Are they about to take your life? And she's like, uh, no, but they're breaking into my car. And they're like, sorry, we can't send anybody because we're, we're so thin on staff right now that we can't allocate any resources to you. We have to allocate them in the, the other crime-ridden neighborhoods because if we send officers your way, then there's going to be another shortage elsewhere. And there's a, the, the crime is soaring through the roof right now in, in Minneapolis, for example. Um, so, uh, so, so that's why the emphasis right now is, is seemingly pro-police on my part is because there is a shortage. It's not really a pro-anything uh, emphasis. It's just a what is the real problem right now? If you were to pull, and then there are certain uh, recent polls that I've looked at, if you were to pull these residents in, I believe it was um, uh, Michigan, I believe, or was it New York City? One of the two, there was a poll um, on, on what are the most uh, pressing issues in your community. And you saw with Black uh, respondents, crime was like in the top three Things and it was at a higher priority than white respondents, and uh, and also you know we've both seen the polls, um, many many polls showing that overwhelmingly Black Americans don't want less policing; they want better policing. And polls do show that they do sense a a uh, hostility between officers at times, and they view racial profiling to be unjust. There is polling to show that, but when it comes to uh, reducing police presence, that is widely, widely unpopular. But with, with, with the BLM movement, they've created obviously an optical, I would say an optical kind of illusion where you, you have certain black voices that uh, rise to the top that are uh, seemingly representative of the black population as a whole. But in reality, those black voices are very, they have a very specific niche point of view. They're, they're neo-Marxist, anti-capitalist, anti-police, anti-traditional family. And, and, and then so when, when you start to critique those people and, and all their followers, young, you know, many of them in my generation, then you get accused of you're, you're, you're going against black lives. Black people believe, you know, that we should defund the police and you're saying that they shouldn't be. And so that's a common uh, perception that you get. I do want to address the other uh, couple of things that you've uh, mentioned with respect to progress in terms of policing. If you look at the metric of police shootings in specific, even police shootings of uh, black men, Eric Kaufman at the Manhattan Institute had a report on this about uh, the changing dynamics of, uh, of uh, race relations. I believe this was in the summertime, if not a bit before that. And uh, in his report, he highlighted some research showing that police shootings have precipitously declined. Um, there's specific data in New York City that is basically the only city New York City and Los Angeles that has kept a longitudinal uh, database on this going back decades, yeah. and then they show a sharp decline in police shootings. Over what, period of, over what period of time, Ralph? 
yeah, uh, since I believe this was 1970s, 1980s, sharp decline. And then there's also some data that Eric Hoffman was highlighting showing that in terms of uh, black men specifically over the past few decades, since 1980s, 1990s, there's been something like a 50 to 60% decline in police shootings. So when people say that no progress has been made, yes, progress has been made. The police are not ridden with racism as they were before. And also the other sign of progress, which isn't really a, it's a sign of racial progress for sure. It doesn't mean that the police are free of all problems, but we have seen the integration of minority officers. Um, I have written about this before in City Journal, how um, uh, uh, Black Americans are marginally overrepresented in law enforcement. And so uh, um, it's not an underrepresentation, it's a slight overrepresentation in comparison to the share of the population. Um, and in many departments in major cities like New York City, majority minority police department, Philadelphia, LA, lots of Hispanic and black officers. And so this is the case for the, the, the driving problem being white supremacy or racism seems to be less and less plausible as you have more and more in these communities, black and Hispanic officers dealing with these problems, not to say that they don't commit brutal acts of violence. I've seen cases of black officers committing horrible uh, police shootings. There was a recent conviction in Minneapolis of this black officer. I believe he was, um, he shot this white woman in Minneapolis a few years ago. He was, he was recently convicted in a pretty lengthy prison Okay, sentence. excuse me for interrupting, but so, go ahead. Uh, let, me, let me just interject. I mean, obviously a system can be anti-black while the functionaries working within that system are black. So I, I, the logic of what you just said, I don't think follows that uh really sure why why not why not why why can't you hire uh guards and keepers uh from the group that's being oppressed and still have there be oppression this is just a logical point i'm not saying it's true or false about the world as such i'm saying you don't disprove the existence of racism by pointing out that the racial composition of what i take to be the instrument of racism that is the police this is a hypothetical but you see the point you don't you don't mm-hmm. disprove that uh, you know what happened with incarceration in the United States between 1980 and 2000. We went from 500,000 people under lock and key on a given day in the country to over two million under lock and key on a given day in the country. Uh, nearly half of them are black. Um, If I were to think, this is actually not my argument, but it could be that that in and of itself, it's a complex social phenomenon, but it represents a massive mobilization of state coercive resources to control a population. And if I were to think that the immediate causes of it, things like the war on drugs, were profoundly political slash cultural phenomenon that had a racial aspect to it. There's no way around that if you know anything about the history of the United States. Um, And I were to say that even if the people who carried out the massive increase in the scale of imprisonment in the United States over the course of a generation, quadrupling the number of people under lock and key in two decades, even if they didn't have a hit list with non-white people on it, they should have been able to notice 
five or 10 or 15 years into this thing, what the consequences of their policies, even if they were unintended consequences in terms of racial uh, disparity and so forth might be. So, so that, that's, that's the backdrop, or at least that's one of the backdrops of this whole uh, anti-police, anti-incarceration, mm-hmm. uh, J- mm-hmm. George Soros DAs getting themselves elected around the country and deciding they're going to decriminalize everything and they're not going to bring cases and no bail movements where people don't want Rikers Island to exist anymore and they want to get rid of uh, cash bail because a person is innocent until they're proven guilty, even though <laughs> 95% of the cases end up with the person pleading or being shown to have been guilty of the alleged offense, notwithstanding that fact, et cetera. All of that is nested within a historical context. That's where Angela Davis comes from. That, that's where uh, Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow, comes from. It comes out of a reaction against that mobilization. And yes, it could be. It could be. Again, this is not actually my argument. But I'm, but I, yeah, I yeah. you know, I can make my argument, but I'm interviewing you. You can make my argument just as sure. well as I can, but I'm making their argument. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. that can be racist in some deep sense. Mm-hmm. Even if the people who are being hired as prison guards and hired as police officers and so forth mm-hmm. are are non uh, are non-whites. Uh, so I, I, can you can you address yeah. yourself? Because there's a reason why people are putting these Black Lives Matter signs in their windows. It's not all virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. Some of them really believe that there are moral oh, yeah. issues. Yeah. And there's a reason why I also want you to address this. That And I agree, by the way, with your observation. If you take a microphone and you go and talk to people who live where carjackings and drive-by shootings take place, they'll say, we like the cops. We want them to come and protect us. I agree with that. But almost to a person, the spokespeople, the intellectuals, the journalists, the political representatives of African Americans support Black Lives Matter. Are they all fools or crazy? Are they all being uh, uh, intimidated into having to affirm a mantra? Or do some of them actually believe what they're saying and, and think, I don't know if you saw the very fine article by Alden Morris. Alden Morris is a sociologist at Northwestern University, African-American. He wrote a book about the origins of the civil rights movement, the original civil rights movement. He has a piece in Scientific American, Rob, where he analyzes Black Lives Matter as a phenomenon, as a social phenomenon. And he says, for the 21st century, this is what a civil rights movement is going to look like. It's not going to look like what you saw in 1955 or 1962. It's going to look more or less like what you see right now. And you can try to discredit it by throwing around names like Marxist and atheist and, you know, whatever. But there's more going on here historically uh, than simply name calling. There's something important that's going on here. And if, if, you know, I don't know what you have to say about that, but that's my best effort to give voice to uh, uh, the mm-hmm. counter counter argument. Right. Okay. Good. Um, yeah. So uh, when it comes to the war on drugs specifically, um, apart from the hyperbolic claims that that was what led to uh, mass incarceration, like that that was that that accounted for a overwhelming percentage of the prison population. That's not country. true. That's not true. That, that, that is not true. Yeah. However, the war on drugs has been, in my reading, a disastrous policy from the start. 
it has had good intentions and many of those intentions have been uh, led by black voices who are concerned by crack cocaine epidemic in their communities and soaring crime and exploding lawlessness in their communities, uh, the, dis the disintegration of law and order and just their communities being dis disintegrated from the center. Um, but but that, that still doesn't make the war on drugs to be uh, a net positive. It just, it, it, from my reading, it just had too many costs. The, 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 the costs outweigh the benefits for that policy in my reading, but with just so many people having been locked up uh, for reasons that were not seemingly legitimate, it's uh, created greater hostility between police and these communities and has led to, um, to just the wrong focus, uh, 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 a diminished focus on violent crime, a greater focus on nonviolent drug offenses. So I, I'm totally on board with that argument that the, the, we, the, something like the war on drugs should be radically pulled back, if not totally abolished. Um, but when it comes to the, the again, the racism claim, um, really, you, you want to argue? I'm, I'm not saying you, but obviously you're, you're playing devil's advocate. It's all but, good. But, but like, really, you want to say that, that the racial composition is not significant here? And it's not just, it's not that they, these are white, old, Republican patriarchs hiring these black people and exploiting them and putting them in blue uniforms and sending them out to do their evil white supremacist work. It's, it's black police chiefs, black lawmakers, overwhelmingly Democrat, black uh, aldermen, city councilors, school principals, uh, et cetera, et cetera, hiring black officers. Um, so so, so to make that argument, you would have to argue that these uh, black leaders are so powerless that they can't overcome the forces of white supremacy and are perpetuating these uh, uh, racist policies. Because if they are racist, let's get the black police chiefs, DAs, officers. Let us, you know, they should be changing things. They should be dismantling systemic racism. But obviously, that is a a framework that is far too simplistic. The problem runs deeper than race. It, it's a problem of economic class. It is a problem of, of culture, which is a great, great taboo, which is why I've, I've admired your work so much as you've highlighted some of the cultural uh, uh, underlying factors here that play a role. Um, it's, you know, the, the progressive left, as I've pointed out before uh, in various articles, whenever they see a disparity, they look for external uh, explanations always, that's their default. So why aren't there enough black uh, neurosurgeons? Why aren't there enough, why is there a, an underrepresentation of black physicians or uh, lawyers in this law firm? It's because that law firm is racist. It's because there's racism in medical schools, et cetera. What, why is there an overrepresentation of black uh, offenders in the prison population? Well, why are black people being arrested disproportionately? That is because Policing is, is, is racist. It is because prisons are racist. That is why you see the disparity. Rather than honestly looking at the facts and looking at obviously a disparate um, rate of offending, which you've talked about over and over again, um, which you know, we don't have to hash that out completely if you don't want to. But, but I think, uh, yeah, the systemic racism arguments are far too uh, simplistic to highlight some of the real 
problems with, within policing, for sure, with the war on drugs, funding the police better so you have um, police officers that are more compassionate, caring, and able to make these uh, very difficult uh, decisions in a, a small amount of time, like pulling the trigger in cases like Micaiah Bryan, Jacob Blake, which go viral immediately and officers get painted uh, as racist, very, are very, very difficult to make. And in some cases, um, officers do make the wrong decision. And in order for them, in order to increase your likelihood of uh, officers making the best decisions, you can't eradicate you can't eradicate mistakes and misbehavior totally. But in order to promote um, a greater likelihood of making the right decision in those cases, you need cops that are well rested, not stressed out, are getting the proper therapy and the mental health support that they need, so that they can better deal. Um, uh, uh, with these communities, so, so there's there's lots to be changed with respect to law enforcement, and of course there are many internal problems, things that account for some of the disparities in crime, um, and and that and, and those things should be uh, talked about honestly with respect to uh, family dynamics and culture and those things that you've obviously talked about at great eloquent length before. Well, thank you for saying so. And yes, indeed, I have talked about those things. And uh, your uh, account sounds familiar because it's not all that far from my account to some extent. Um, I'll step out of the devil's advocate role for a moment uh, just to clarify. I mean, I, I think that the criminal uh, offending behavior of a minority, and this must be emphasized, of a minority of the residents of communities of high crime districts where homicides are happening in St. Louis or in Baltimore and Philadelphia, Chicago, uh, where the, the uh, carjackings and uh, other uh, felony uh, property crimes are, are taking place. Um, the, the disproportionate rate of offending of a relatively small number of uh, social uh, uh, misfits making life miserable for everybody else who has to live there is the core issue. Um, and this is something that people just don't want to face uh, because it is daunting. It is not at all clear what to do. Uh, it, you know, Programs. We should have more programs. People can't demonstrate any reliable interventions that are having a significant effect on uh, on this behavior. They say it's due to poverty. Not all poor communities exhibit behavior to the same extent. You say culture can't be talked about it. It's obvious that any common sense meaning of the word culture is implicated to some degree in these patterns of behavior that we're seeing in these communities. How could this I mean, don't don't take me for a fool. I, I can see how people are living. I can see the out of wedlock birth rate in the father absence. I, I can see the gang activity. I can see the violence. What does it take to actually shoot somebody to death as an act? You think anybody can do that? Anybody can just take a gun and shoot somebody? They, there are inhibitions. There, there are psychological and emotional blocks that keep us and ethical and ethical blocks indeed internalized ethical commitments uh, of what kind of person am I and how shall I live in the world? What do I think of myself? How can I be accountable to the people who I love, to whom I look for uh, affirmation and for their respect? If I behave in this way or that, 
to dismiss that, to say that that's not at all relevant, to say that everything is driven by unemployment rates uh, is is uh, offensive to to common sense and I think also inconsistent with a serious engagement with the evidence. So I'm 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 with you. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's not even a but here. Um, can you talk to us a little bit because you've actually been looking at the numbers and some of it is reflected in your uh, recent piece in City Journal about exactly what has happened in terms of criminal offending uh, in American cities over the last uh, couple of years? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I also wanted to address some of the uh, the cultural arguments uh, that you just laid out. Um, I think well, one point to make here, um, the, the connection between poverty and violence is less obvious and clear and significant than one might think. That, that is one thing that I've learned over the past couple of years in uh, reading and researching this issue. I mean, you, this is a taboo realm of, of research, by the way, as many academics have attested to. But it, you, can, you can control for economic status, as some studies have done, and you, and you look at, uh, you know, you look at, for example, low-income Asian communities, very low-income Asian uh, communities, where there's lots of unemployment, many issues, like lots of immigrants coming in who barely speak the language and aren't able to access various resources. You, you, know, you compare low-income Asian communities with, with higher-income Black communities, and the, the difference in crime, uh, so sorry, the, the crime rates are far higher in the Black communities compared to the low-income Asian communities. Now, why why is that? Now, obviously, this this doesn't need to be this need not have to be said, but because there are some crazy lunatic progressives who might you know think that I'm insinuating this nothing to do with genetics or any biological predisposition. That is not in my mind at all. Okay, again, doesn't need to be said, but I'm just saying it. Um, but obviously, you know, if if economics doesn't explain it, if you have higher income black communities committing having higher rates of crime relative to Asian communities, then you've isolated the role of, of economic status, but you still have a higher rate of crime. So what, so what is the driving factor then? Is it fatherlessness? Is it culture? All those things matter. Um, so I, I, just, I just don't find the economic argument to be convincing. I mean, there's also uh, uh, one study that uh, Barry Latzer, if you're familiar, the American criminologist, are you familiar? Barry Lasser, yeah, he, he's, he's a conservative criminologist, but he, he's uh, written about this at great length, about how in the 1990s and 80s, you had certain black immigrant groups, such as the uh, black immigrants coming in from Haiti, who uh, were also uh, dealing with economic issues on top of language and cultural issues, and, and also had similar, if not higher rates of poverty relative to American-born black communities, but yet their crime rates were significantly lower. This is, we're speaking the 80s or 90s. Um, yet, yet their crime rates were lower. So, so in that case, you've even isolated uh, race. You've made that constant. You have two black populations, and yet uh, one has significantly higher crime rates. So you've eliminated race and economic status. So you're left with either, you know, society is somehow distinguishing between immigrant, uh, a black, individuals and non-immigrant black individuals, which is not possible, or there are differences 
between populations, irrespective of race and economic class, that have to do with culture, have to do with family dynamics, and you know, fatherlessness is something that you've talked about at great length. High rates of fatherlessness that contribute to uh, inner city uh, dysfunction and crime. And so I, I just wanted to say yeah. that before I I, I want to go question. I want to go back. I want to go back. You said uh, you disavowed that you're making any uh, assumption about genetic differences between Asian and African descended populations in calling attention to the fact that a lower economic strata Asian population had lower crime rates than a higher economic strata African American population. That happened. You're not saying it's genetics, it's culture. And here's what I want to say. Might it not be easier to take if it were genetic, if there were a genetic element, here's what I mean. Um, I'm not saying there is. I don't know, frankly. Uh, I don't know how you know that there's not. Um, certainly populations that descend over many generations from relatively different uh, primordial uh, uh, stock could have evolved some differences in I don't know, the glandular system and how uh, people deal with aggression or uh, the impulse control or whatever. I'm not saying it's true. I, I don't believe that it's true. I'm just saying it could be true. Um, and if, if indeed, I mean, because we're talking about relatively small numbers of people here, we, we, the people who are engaging in these violent criminal activities are uh, uh, a minority of the population. They're outliers. They're behavioral outliers. Um, and uh, the way people react to stress, I mean, interaction between genetic and environmental factors that uh, could conceivably be implicated. I mean, we a lot of different areas of human behavior have very sharply unequal representation of people from different um, uh, primordial population stocks. Um, of the look in the professional sports, for example, where you see a vast overrepresentation of African Americans, et cetera. I won't belabor the point. What I meant though was that might it not be easier to take in the sense that, you know, well, okay, there's an app for that. I mean, if, if indeed it's a question of uh, how much adrenaline is coming out in the response to a certain environmental stimuli, and I find that that is partly under genetic control and it differs as between these populations, I'm not saying it's true. I don't know that it's true. I'm just saying something like that could be true. A, it, maybe it's treatable. And B, it really does take the moral judgment onus off of the population that's on the short end of the comparison uh, because people can't really control that. Um, so I just, uh, this is a, a meta comment. I'm, I'm not actually making a claim about genetics. I'm, I'm talking about whether we should be willing to even consider that possibility in the range of explanations and about the ethics of doing so. And I'm trying to say that I think the ethics are ambiguous of doing so. I, it's not necessarily a racist act or an anti-Black act uh, to begin to entertain that kind of a possibility. Again, A, because it might point toward interventions <coughs> <coughs> that could be um, uh, you know, helpful in, in diminishing disparity, but also because it... it What's the alternative? See, the alternative is look how they raise their children. Uh, look at the way they are. Look how look at what they believe. Have you listened to the rap music? Do you see the raunchiness of their culture? Do you see how they are? 
Uh, and that's very, very condemnatory. It's not genetic, it's cultural. But if there were um, uh, a, a vigorous argument of that sort to be made, it seems to me that it could be equally, uh, you know, diminishing of the of the status and and the 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 kind of reputation of a population. What do you think about that? Yeah. No, I don't think we should totally ignore the, the possibility of these genetic differences. I, I just come at it from a perspective of ignorance and lack of knowledge. I, I, I just haven't spent a lot of time looking at this. And every time I do... I don't mean to put you on the thing. spot, excuse me, Robert. No, no, yeah, yeah, of course. No, 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 no. Yeah, I totally get it. But, um, and also, every, every time I do look at this uh, issue, which I have in the past, I come away thinking that you know, even if I were to formulate an opinion on this, uh, it, it just wouldn't be worth either way to make that opinion because of we've I mean, the classic example is that Sam Harris and Charles Murray, their infamous podcast talking about racial differences and Sam being attacked by Vox Media, Ezra Klein and mainstream media because of even just airing that conversation. Um, so, so I, I just, I, I, this is not my area of research, but, but I, what, what I will say is like the example that I gave from the American criminologist, Barry Latzer, um, just to elaborate on that a bit more, like he, he found that, um, in the 1980s, you had Haitian immigrants coming in from Miami through illegal boats. Haiti's also had this brutal history of slavery and these people that were coming in, uh, were widely illiterate, could barely speak the language, uh, couldn't find a job right away, just so many social and economic issues, yet they're, they're, they weren't killing each other, they weren't resorting to committing acts of gang violence, and, and again, their crime rates were, their, their homicide rates were far lower than uh, the homicide and other crime rates uh, in nearby black communities in Miami that were not from Haiti, that were native-born uh, Black Americans. And so, so there, again, there's, there's room for, for culture and behavior and for family. There, obviously, you're holding you know, genetics to be constant. We have two Black groups, again, yet, yet the crime rates are radically different. And, and so, obviously, there's fatherlessness comes into the picture of religion, morals, values, prioritizing, education, work ethic, perseverance, following social norms, following, you know, what society has laid out to you, uh, but by some extent and not resorting to these other illicit means of achieving economic status. Um, I also want to make one other point and, and you know, feel free to respond to what I said here, but uh, in terms of like interventions to reduce crime, it's, you know, when it comes to alternatives to prison, there's nothing that comes even close to providing an alternative to prison. When people say we should be locking people up, we should be, you know, giving them social services instead, the evidence for that is 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 uh, mixed at best, but it's it's really weak. You, you, there is no alternative for wait a minute incapacity. You can say more about the evidence. Uh, what is what is the effect that is not that nothing can substitute for prison to produce? Yeah. What is the effect? Well, Crime reduction. Yes, yes, crime reduction. The, the, the reality is violent offenders who have these ingrained behavioral patterns, 
uh, of committing these acts of violence and dealing drugs, the, the, by all best available evidence, putting them in prison, I'm talking about highly violent individuals, is the only way to uh, reduce crime in society. There, there is no comparison for any other alternatives on how to deal with that problem. That being said, there are certain interventions based in uh, various uh, psychotherapies that are shown to be effective. There's one program, it's called uh, Becoming a Man, that was uh, uh, launched and studied by the University of Chicago. They have a crime lab there where they study crime and social issues. It's a very left-leaning uh, uh, organization in the University of Chicago, but they've done... Wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you're talking about my friends over there. <laughs> you're talking about Jens Ludwig. You're talking about Harold Pollock. I mean, I actually, yeah, yeah. I actually know some of these yeah. people. Uh, yeah, that, I yeah. don't know about Jens. I know Harold is a little bit left of center, but he was my student uh, uh, decades ago at the Kennedy School of Government, uh, where, where he mm -hmm. did his PhD, where I was on the faculty in the 1980s and early 90s. Harold is good people. Uh, so what, what are you saying about him now? I was going to say <laughs> positive things. Yeah. They, they did a program, uh, Becoming a Man, that they, they studied. They, um, uh, they did these randomized controlled trials where they uh, put uh, at-risk youth in these programs where they gave them cognitive behavioral therapy and um, uh, had these weekly follow-up sessions and encouraging uh, the prioritization of, of education and giving them various forms of ethical education, psychotherapy, dealing with, you know, understanding their issues, you know, these youth, you know, coming from families where they don't have fathers, violence is surrounding them, and their their options are limited, and they're considering following a life of crime and violence and drug dealing. Okay, and becoming so they, a man. You know, okay. Yes, becoming a man, and so that that program showed a uh, fifty percent reduction in violent crime arrests and uh, graduation rates uh, were increased by about twenty percent through this program. And, and for my reading of it, the, the research is compelling. Study was really well done. And so, so programs like that do exist. And so we should be funding those programs. We should be looking at at-risk youth in these inner city areas like Baltimore, Chicago, uh, St. Louis, and, and providing youth in high schools and middle schools with the, the psychological and social and ethical support that they're not getting in their family environment due to various factors. So, so there is room for society to come in for, for educators, for psychotherapists and counselors, mental health uh, experts to provide uh, some sort of uh, benefit and, and discourage a path of crime and, and follow, you know, getting, getting your education and getting training in, in trades or getting a job, whatever it is, rather than dealing drugs around the corner. Okay. I want to shift the subject, if I may. Go ahead. Um, I want to talk about patriarchy and uh, uh, all of that. Haven't you had something to say about? Uh, do I that word was in the title of one of your articles recently? Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, that, that was an essay that I wrote uh, last December, and, I'm, and now I'm writing a, a uh, another uh, progression of that article, shorter form. This one's going to be in the New York Post. Whereas that one was in Colette, and that one was just uh, addressing the the phenomenon of Asian American and also Middle Eastern American success in the U.S. in terms of uh, economic achievement, educational achievement. 
Um, that article specifically was looking at this new emerging uh, finding that Asian women by certain metrics are out earning white men now, marginally speaking, which is extraordinary uh, for, for various reasons, including the fact that there are obvious differences uh, between men and women when you're comparing income differentials. Obviously, there are many differences uh, when you're comparing you know, men and women, and people always cite the gender wage gap. There are various confounding variables that uh, lead to that disparity. But in this case, even with those various confounding variables with respect to uh, you know, uh, raising children, spending time towards family, you know, men just don't have, you know, men are not giving birth to children and going on you know, maternity leave and et cetera, et cetera. But Asian women are now out earning white men. And now, according to the latest data that I've looked again, that, that finding has been consistent across 2021 now. And, and just in that article, I was providing, I, I was first of all pointing out that the explanation for external treatment by society is not compelling. The idea that this group is outperforming other groups because society is deeming this group to be more uh, of, of valuable um, because of racial prejudices over other groups. So like you see whenever uh, ethnic groups are underperforming, and I mentioned this before in, let's say, law firms or medical school or in physicians or chemistry labs at Harvard, et cetera, the, the explanation for that is, is because uh, these chemistry labs are filled with racism, medical schools are filled with racism, law firms are. Um, but uh, th th that is not a compelling explanation because when my, you know, my minority groups routinely outperform uh, the white population in several areas, and the explanation there can't be that it's because that that institution or because society is favoring those ethnic groups in that case. It is because the 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 differences are accounted by culture uh, and behavior rather than any kind of external thing. Not to say that those external factors don't exist, such as history of slavery and okay. Uh, and then redlining and of contributing to uh, economic disparities, but that there are behavioral differences. <clears throat> and in, in, in the case of, of Asian women, well, we, we can talk more about that. I don't know if you want to. No, I want to ask here, you, but, yeah. I want to ask you something. Yeah. Because I mean, here's what I would bet. I would bet that if you controlled for uh, their education um, and occupation, that you wouldn't find what you're finding when you have a gross comparison of the earnings of, of people, the Asian women earning more than white men as you, you say, and I'll take you yeah. at your word on that. My guess yeah, is that that's largely accounted for by higher educational achievement of male yeah. Asian women and by their concentration in different occupational niches, yeah. which are higher paying. Yeah. Uh, so that, that takes a little yeah. bit of the surprise factor out of that. Um, I don't know if you're mm -hmm. distinguishing between foreign-born and, and domestic uh, you know, in, in this United States, I assume you're referring to. So I, I worry about immigration selectivity, but the, the foreign born population, if included at all in those data, might not be big enough to make that much of a difference. But the other thing I, I wanted to put to you is, OK. But I'm not surprised either, because if I look at intermarriage rates between Asian born people, Asian uh, ethnicity 
people and uh, white uh, people, I find that a third, 40% of Asian American women are marrying, who are married, are married to white men. Uh, and that the uh, ability for that kind of intimate social connectivity to take place suggests that the antipathy that I would ordinarily associate with racism might not be nearly as severe in the case of Asian American women. I have indirect evidence that the uh, powerful white gatekeepers may be more favorably predisposed to accepting in their ranks Asian American women. I have that from the social fact of high rates of intermarriage. Uh, white families adopting where they are able to adopt uh, infants from other countries, being willing to take in Asian kids, not being willing to take in black kids, this kind of thing. What do you say about that? Um, well, first of all, you're right about uh, education and selecting higher paid uh, occupations resulting in the economic disparity, or at least greatly contributing to it. Asian women well, Asians, period, tend to pick the higher paying fields uh, in STEM, engineering, uh, medical fields, et cetera. So a secondary, excuse women. me, a secondary question would be within those fields, when I compare Asian women to white men, do I see them mm -hmm. earning more? And I'll bet the answer is no on that question. But I, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. That would also be the case. Um, <clears throat> but that, that doesn't. So, so that makes it less surprising, yes, when we're looking at it from an economic perspective. Uh, it, it, it diminishes the surprise element, but it does not diminish the, um, the implausibility of the racism argument by, by, show, by saying that, yes, Asian women are out-earning white men in terms of these aggregate numbers because they are, it's not that society is selecting them uh, indoctrinating Asian women, you know, come, you know, work harder, come to our, our schools and, and, and more rigorously study and take AP courses and do, do chemistry and uh, physics and all these things. It's that it's, uh, Asian women are more uh, selecting these fields for various reasons, mostly I would account for by, by family dynamics, the encouragement of, of hard work ethic and taking uh, difficult uh, mathematical and, and hard science fields yeah. in Asian families that you see. Um, so, so that, I think, yeah, is a good explanation for, for what, what is happening there. And, and, and again, that just, uh, in my view, disproves the whole oppression narrative that it is, again, that it's society selecting certain groups over others. Not to say that there is no prejudice, not to say there is no immigration selectivity, which I've um, addressed before, but it is to say that behavior and culture are factors that are incredibly important in shaping group outcomes that are almost never talked about because of political correctness, because of the focus on, on racism, on prejudice, on misogyny and transphobia and uh, racism and xenophobia, all these things. The fact that so many groups, including specific groups such as you know, uh, uh, Palestinian, Turkish, South Asian, you know, Indian, Pakistani women out-earning the, the white women by significant margins shows that you know ethnic women in this case you, you can do the same comparison with ethnic people period or with ethnic men but for whatever reason i i, I picked ethnic uh, women in this case it shows that being of a minority background does not give you this big disadvantage that the progressives seem to be uh, are uh, 
pointing out in many cases. You know, it can be really hard to find the right book or audio book or podcast. With all the content that's available to us today, you could spend as much time looking for your next book as you actually spend reading it. But with Scribd, you get instant access to millions of eBooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more. You also get thoughtfully curated editor's picks and smart recommendations based on what you've read, which makes choosing your next book that much simpler. I've had personal experience with Scribd and I really enjoy it. So I'm urging you to consider subscribing. With Scribd, the world's most fascinating library is at your fingertips. It's all for just $9.99 a month. You can explore all of your interests in any format, millions of eBooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more. You'll enjoy instant access to Scribd's entire library for less than the cost of a single book. It couldn't be simpler. No complicated credits or additional purchases. Right now, Scribd is offering our listeners a free 60-day trial. Go to try.scribd.com slash Glenn to get your free trial. That's try.scribd.com slash Glenn with two N's to get 60 days of Scribd for free. You won't be sorry. Again, I I have to add a, a note, which is, well, if we're going to break it down to Pakistani and Indonesian and, you know, whatever, now we have to really worry about the selectivity of migration, don't we? I mean, what? who are the Pakistani mm-hmm. population in the United States of America? Who are they actually? Uh, they haven't been here three generations. They They are a relatively recent arriving population. And who is it that migrates from Pakistan to the United States. It's a person with a university degree who has a professional skill that, et cetera. I mean, I, again, haven't looked at these data, but I would yeah. expect that that's the case. Yep. But uh, I, th- I think we should close out here, uh, Rav. I've, I've got uh, uh, only a little, a limited amount of time left uh, for our, sure. for our discussion. So I'm just wondering. Yeah. We, we totally missed on the, the, the homicide reporting and the, uh, the rising crime rates, but maybe that'll be for another time. Okay, well, let's take another five or ten minutes if you like. If you if you want to talk to us about uh, crime rates and homicide, which you've been chronicling and uh, reporting yep. on uh, the consequences of that for minority communities, who's actually bearing the cost of these offending things and so forth. What do you want to say about that? But you know, we can't. We, we I, I'm going to have sure. to terminate in a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Um. Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, we've, we've seen a historic rise in homicide from 2019 to 2020, 30% increase according to CDC and FBI figures. That's nationwide. The, nationwide. The last uh, record increase was 1967 to 1968. That was a 12.7% increase in homicide. So, so this shatters all previous historical records. What, what happened... Okay, I just want to be clear. Sorry. The rate of homicide has increased by 30% year to year between 2019 yeah. and 2020. Do you have the absolute yeah. numbers of how many? And what's the source of these data? No. FBI and also CDC is very similar. But FBI, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a, it's a, uh, I believe it's precisely 29% increase in homicide. 
From what to what, um, uh, roughly? Uh, oh, that absolute numbers I can't remember off the top of my head. Okay. Um, Nearly a 30% increase in homicide. Previously, the greatest year-to-year increase is 12% that you saw in the late 1980s. 60s. The late 1960s. Yeah. Okay. So, so when you have talking, my attention. We're talking, <laughs> we're, we're, when we're talking about aggregate numbers, it's obviously very different. We're, we're not saying that 2020 had, uh, you know, far more homicides than 1990s or 1980s. We're, we're just saying that's the critique that some people have been saying. You know, it's still far better than the 1990s. It is. You know, which is it is, but that, but that, that's not. What, what does that mean? Like, why, why are we focusing on the 1990s? We should be looking at progress over the past five, 10 years. Okay. And, and also, also to that point, by the way, uh, that, that is actually not true in certain communities. Philadelphia just broke its record for homicides. It just uh, surpassed 500, 500 homicides. I know. Uh, yep. Um, uh, Austin, Texas just beat its record. Columbus, Indianapolis, Milwaukee, Louisville, Cincinnati, if I haven't mentioned that already, they've all broken historical records. Uh, in the year 2021. 2021, I'm talking about, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the ongoing trends now. Chicago saw a 55% increase. This is one example. Chicago saw a 55% increase in homicides year over year from 2019 to 2020. Now there's like another marginal 5% increase in homicides. The trend is continuing. And so they're about to... Uh, have the highest number, ha- highest homicide rate since nine. Sorry, no, highest homicide counts period since 1996. And various other cities are on par with uh, ni- 1990s and 80s. Cleveland, Ohio, is reaching homicide levels uh, that are close to the 1980s levels. Okay, excuse so, me for so, interrupting. In the yeah. interest of time, so we established that homicide is up. Why do you yeah. think that is, and what do you propose to do about it? Yeah. Uh, briefly, the best explanation is de-policing in the wake of George Floyd. Uh, Paul Cassell, University of Utah, he, he did a great paper on this, the, the Minneapolis effect, similar to the Ferguson effect, where he saw a, a, a drastic reduction in police-initiated activity, proactive policing. You saw traffic stops, pedestrian stops, arrests uh, radically decline in the wake of uh, George Floyd in Philadelphia, Minneapolis, Chicago, New York City, et cetera. Uh, in some cases, these declines were very sharp, and then they increased a bit. But in many cases, the, these uh, trends continued to lower levels than normal. Police were demoralized. They weren't engaging in proactive policing the same way they were before because of the media backlash. Because just culturally, psychologically speaking, this is very obvious, when you have the media attacking you, uh, when you have uh, various police shootings, apart from George Floyd, where police do the right thing, like Jacob, uh, Jacob Blake, for example, justified police shooting in uh, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, yet the, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the whole media is saying this was a racist shooting. How dare a black man be killed? That obviously has shockwaves across the country in the way law enforcement. You're blaming you're blaming Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris indirectly for the uh, historic yes. increase in yes. homicides. That's pretty uh, I, I'm blaming, there. Yeah. I, that, no, I'm citing that as, a, as an example of the broader anti-police culture okay. that has had a massive effect. And Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, in, in cases where police shootings were later found to be justified of black men, um, were immediately uh, shown, were uh, uh, blamed on white supremacy, on an officer being racist. 
that has huge implications. And there are several cases that I can point to of police shootings where this has happened, where again, it was a justified police shooting, but it was severe as racist, officer was fired, the media attacked him, Okay, that, that has constant, sorry. Have you, I just want to ask if you've seen the study by Tanaya Devi and Roland Fryer. Yes. On, yeah. uh, the consequences, let me tell the audience what they find of federal investigations of local police departments for pattern and practice civil rights-like violations where the feds have come in. And what Devi and Fryer find in this paper that you can get from the National Bureau for Economic Research, D-E-V-I, Devi and Roland Fryer, F-R-Y-E-R, is that in instances where there is a federal investigation of local police departments occasioned by the reaction to one of these viral police shooting incidents, that the actual causal effect of having the feds come into the local area and investigate the police department is to lead to an increase, a very substantial increase in violent and property crime in the cities where the investigations are taking place. They find this through an econometric method that it would be too complicated for me to try to explain, but they basically create the event of the investigation and they look at a before and after comparison. And they can do that in cities where the investigation has occasioned, been occasioned by a George Floyd-like incident and in occasions where an investigation has not been occasioned by a George Floyd-like incident. And they find, uh, and where there's been no investigation at all, and they jigger the data around so as to be able to make a before and after comparison, what's the impact of the investigations? Now, how could it be that the feds investigating a local police department, I asked when I was reading their paper, lead to more violent crime? Answer, they, they chronicle and document reductions in police engagement with citizens, reduction in policing activity in the cities that follow the investigation, where officers are not making as many stops, not, not being as proactive in their engagement with, uh, with uh, potential offenders as they had previously been prior to investigation. Well, why wouldn't the officers be as proactive? Because the fact of the investigation leads the officers to suspect that should there be some miscue or something that goes askew in an encounter, that they're going to end up in the dock, that they're going to end up losing their pensions, that they're going to end up under criminal investigation and it's not worth the candle, so they're pulling back. Now, they can't directly prove that the officers are pulling back because of the investigation, but the association is awfully suggestive. So these are black lives. And it, when the homicide rate goes down or up, the consequence of that can be measured in black and brown lives because in these such situations, three quarters, four-fifths of the people who are victims of a homicide are going to be from uh, racial minority groups in Chicago, in mm -hmm. Philadelphia, in Baltimore, and et cetera. So anyway, just backing you yep. up there. I've given you a hard time uh, here no, no. today, Rob. But uh, you know, I, I should also quickly I should also quickly mention, and we're short on time. But with respect to the 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 racial implications of the homicide rise, as I wrote about in my recent City Journal article, yeah, eighty five uh, uh, in this one study by the Marshall uh, Project, the study done on major American cities, uh, L.A., New York City, Philadelphia, et cetera. They, find, they found that the, the national homicide rise, sorry, they found 85% of the homicide rise was concentrated in black and Hispanic neighborhoods. Yeah. For example, in Chicago, there was a, 
black neighborhood saw a, a 27 per 100,000 uh, increase in homicides in, in black neighborhoods in Chicago, whereas white neighborhoods only saw two per 100,000 increase in homicides. And, and if you look at total aggregate numbers, uh, 2020 saw an additional 2,000 black lives lost to homicide compared to the year before. About 10,000 black homicide victims compared to about 8,000 in 2019. Yeah. That is a that is a moral tragedy. That that should evoke a societal response that is not authoritarian, but something lower than that. A, an incredibly rigorous, robust response. The same way we've seen with COVID. With COVID, you know, this is another tangent, but we've seen an overblown response. You know, preventing COVID deaths at all costs. You know, even at economic costs, we've seen you know shut down the schools, shut, shut down everything to you know, prevent COVID deaths. When it comes to homicide deaths. We're not seeing uh, a similar response. We see. Well, we wouldn't want to, that, would we? <laughs> would we want to shut down the economy to stop homicide? No, no I don't mean shut down. The, I mean have a societal response that is uh, okay. adequate. No, I, I is, take the point. The I, I take the point, yeah. and I'm on your side. Uh, and, yeah. and I'm grateful that you came on the Glenn Show, and it was very good to meet you, uh, Rob. We've corresponded. I've seen your pieces. Uh, this is Rob Aurora. Uh, he is if I may say, a 20-year-old student uh, in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, who is also an independent journalist writing uh, in uh, important venues on social issues. And I'm happy to have had him on The Glimpse Show. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. You bet.